The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 337. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page, at Brian McClanahan. And subscribe to my YouTube page, where you can watch this podcast, at Brian McClanahan. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll there. When you do enroll, you get the best... Uh, first of all, I give you a free course if you enroll. And you get the best deals on forthcoming courses, right? So get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. You get the best deals on new classes and forthcoming classes. I have a new class out right now. If you're on my list, you would have gotten a better deal than what you're getting right now. But I do have a new class out. Southern Cultural and Intellectual History Part 1 takes us from 1607 to 1789. You're going to want to get that class. I will talk about it in a podcast in the near future. But you're going to want it. right? So get out there. Get on the email list. If you're on my regular email list, you're getting a deal on that class right now. You're not paying full price for it. But you got to be on one of the other email lists to get these things. So make sure you're on an email list. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com, clicking on that support tab at the top or forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also get one of my book plates there. If you want my autograph of one of my books, do that. I'll sign it, send it out to you. Uh, of course, I do have a new book out, Southern Scribblings. It's a fantastic book. Just reviewed at the Abbeville Institute yesterday uh, by, by Ron Kennedy. And uh, it's a fun book, so get that thing. It's a 60-essay it's defense of the Southern tradition, and what makes it valuable to American society today. You can also go to LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. You can go to uh, you can go to my Brian McClanahan page, click on that Shop tab, get your Brian McClanahan Show logo and all kinds of stuff. All these things, of course, help support the show and keep this podcast free of charge. Also, please share it around on social media. Share it with your friends. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. It helps grow the audience. Okay, so today I'm going to talk about an article that was sent to me yesterday via Twitter. It's a great way to you know send me things. You want me to talk about something. But this came from Michael Bolden. If you don't know who Michael Bolden is, he's the director of the 10th Amendment Center. Now, I talk a lot about Think Locally, Act Locally, and in a couple, few episodes, episodes ago, I talked about what you can do. If you have a skill, something you can do to help contribute to the cause, what can that be? And Michael Bolden embodies this, right? So... If you don't know anything about the Tenth Amendment Center, it's a great resource for the Tenth Amendment movement, which, of course, is real federalism. Let the states decide all these issues that we're seeing that are problematic in America. Let the states come up with solutions to these problems, because that's really the constitutional charge of the states when it comes to domestic concerns. People think I'm, I'm advocating some radical position. I'm simply just advocating the way the Constitution was ratified in 1788, 1787. This is how it was argued. This is how James Wilson argued it would be interpreted in the State House Yard speech, which everyone believed, which is why they ratified it. If they had known what it would do and what we have now, and I'm going to get into this with the topic of the day, which is Hamilton. If they had known that Hamilton's vision would win, 
They wouldn't have ratified the Constitution. Guaranteed. So, Michael Bolden embodies Think Locally, Act Locally, because here's a guy that a little over 10 years ago, I want to say it was about 2007 or so, he saw a need, he was a, a leftist at one time, saw a need for uh, this idea of the Tenth Amendment. He had started reading things about the Constitution, he got intrigued, and he said, you know, there's nothing out there, no active group that really promotes the Tenth Amendment, just the Tenth Amendment, and it can be a left-right. It doesn't have to be the left, it doesn't have to be the right. In fact, what you'll find is their, their slogan is, you know, the Constitution all the time. They take the side of the left on some issues, they take the side of the right on some issues, because the Constitution is blind when it comes to those things. This is exactly what Washington had said, essentially, in his farewell address. The Constitution is blind. If we have a Constitution that limits the power of the central authority, then all these other things will work itself out in the states. He was warning against factions and other things. When you have extreme centralization, this is what happens. So he started this thing in his living room, basically. And that's still where he essentially operates from, is his living room. He learned how to design websites. He learned how to do video editing. He learned how to do audio editing. He learned how to do all of these things, marketing. He learned how to organize uh, people to get him involved in political activism. He learned all these things on the fly. And the Tenth Amendment Center has become a valuable resource for people on the left and the right. In fact, he often talks about this when he's doing something. If, you know, the, if the uh, Democrats are in power, then the Republicans seem to like him. If the, if the Republicans are in power, the Democrats seem to like him. When you're doing that, you're doing the right thing. Because you're principled then. You're not beholden to party. So if you don't follow Michael Bolden on Twitter, I highly recommend it. If you don't follow the Tenth Amendment Center, I highly recommend it. Because they are a great, again, a great resource for originalism and an original interpretation of the Constitution. I mean, this is, this is important. So he sends me a link. He knows that, of course, I wrote my book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, which should have been a bigger seller than it was. Uh, I don't know why. I think it's because there is this extreme Hamilton worship in the United States. And so he sends me a link to a new book that's out. And of course, yours truly predicted exactly what was going to happen here. This is a new book by Christian Parenti. The title of the book is Radical Hamilton, Economic Lessons from a Misunderstood Founder. And essentially what Christian Parenti has done is saying, look, we got this Hamilton that's been made famous in this musical. Let's look at what Hamilton actually said about the economy. Let's look at what Hamilton actually said about centralization of power. And let's run with it. Let's finish Hamilton's work. You see, what I wrote about in How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America was Hamilton's constitutional machinations. And I pointed out, I didn't get to the economics of anything. because I think other people have done that better and do it better than I could, right? So you have DiLorenzo that's written a nice book about Hamilton, an anti-Hamilton book. Of course, the entire uh, Austrian economic school is anti-Hamilton, right? So, I mean, Hamilton is a state capitalist, a statist, as Parenti points out. So this particular review of the book is published at The Intercept by Ryan Grimm. And it says, We have arrived at a place where we all by now have an opinion of the musical Hamilton, whether we've seen it or not. Or at least we have a strong opinion about people who have opinions of the musical Hamilton, whether we or they have seen it or not. 
Author Christian Parenti has managed something startling in the midst of all this Hamiltonian fascination. He has found something new to say about the man. I don't think this is really new. I mean, I was uh, very concerned about this image of Hamilton. It's why I wrote how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. You know, and, and I was criticized for this. How can you say Hamilton screwed up America? He wasn't even around. He wasn't even around. He provided the blueprint for all the things we've gotten in the modern American state, the United State. This is Hamilton's United State. We live in it. And to say that we haven't done these things already is just complete myth. Radical Hamilton Economic Lessons from a Misunderstood Founder, a new book by Parenti, takes a deep dive through Alexander Hamilton's writing, along with his public reports as the nation's first Secretary of the Treasury, and emerges with a portrait of a man widely misunderstood by his most strident critics and his most slobbering followers. The Hamilton of the imagination of liberals is an immigrant who strive for a better life and build it in America while settling down the cornerstones of our key institutions. He is a good Davos man with just the right amount of skepticism and democracy, a skepticism rooted, of course, in goodwill, with nothing but the interests of the people, misguided as they often may be at heart. That is an easy man for readers of the publication to loathe and for readers of the New York Times to love. Hamilton, I'm pretty sure, is the only thing that Dick Cheney and I agree on, quipped President Barack Obama in 2016. Well, this is exactly why I wrote How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, because he's right. Leftists and neoconservatives love Alexander Hamilton, which makes him a villain. You see, they find what they like in Hamilton because Hamilton, as Parenti points out, is a statist. Hamilton is a statist. He's, he's not what the left portrays him in, in Miranda's play. I mean, this immigrant, all these. He, he's not this leftist. No way was Hamilton a leftist. But he is the architect through his constitutional machinations of all the things that we see in modern American society that we complain about. It is Hamilton's blueprint that provided John Marshall, for example, in McCulloch v. Maryland. He basically just regurgitated Hamilton. I mean, it, there, this is when, I, you know, Richard Brookheiser, if you, if you start asking him, you know, show me where this is. He starts quoting John Marshall, which in essence is quoting Alexander Hamilton, because he, he can't go beyond that. He can't see that that's not how the Constitution was argued it was going to be uh, followed when it was ratified. The other thing he, he does is he calls people like John Taylor of Caroline cranks, kooks. They weren't. So Obama, of course, goes on a long, in this paragraph, he says, you know, Obama said, identified a quintessentially American story. This is the Hamilton play. And the character of Hamilton, a striving immigrant who escaped poverty, made his way to the new world, climbed to the top by sheer force of will and pluck and determination. Lin-Manuel saw something of his own family in every immigrant family. Of course, Hamilton really wasn't an immigrant. I mean, he's going from one British colony to another. Not an immigrant. And he had financial backing. And in the Hamilton that Lin-Manuel and his incredible cast and crew bring to life, a man who is just like, like his country, young, scrappy, and hungry, we recognize the impossible story of America and the spirit that has sustained our nation for over 240 years. Yeah, okay. I mean, this is the problem with Hamilton's play, or the, the Hamilton, the play Hamilton. This, because the left likes to see that. Parenti 
doesn't. He's the the uh, review continues. That's all fine, but that's not what mattered about. It's not what mattered about Hamilton. Parenti argues, implicitly making the case that liberal fans of the musical should follow Hamilton where he would lead in this moment of planetary and civilizational crisis. It's cliched by now to say that the Constitution is not a suicide pact, but for Hamilton, a weak government put the national project at risk. Hamilton saw imminent doom and disintegration around the bend and understood that only a government vested with the ability to actually execute an agenda stood a chance of surviving. Actually execute an agenda. Well, Patrick Henry would say, well, they did it fine during the American War for Independence. And what's funny about this is that Parenti and others miss, he's going to get in the War of 1812, they miss Hamilton's role in that nonsense. They miss it. As Parenti relates, Hamilton's fears were born out in real life, real time, with the War of 1812 being a greatest indictment of the rival Jefferson's approach to small government. But his warning is even more urgent today because it's not just not one just for Americans, but for the globe. Only by embracing an activist Hamiltonian public response to the perils of climate change do the people collectively stand a chance. Oh, I mean, come on now. I'm going to use, come on, man. Use a Joe Biden. Come on, man. Uh, you know the thing. But first of all, I mean, he says later, of course, he, he knows that Hamilton wasn't alive in the War of 1812. But see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Hamilton, while in the cabinet, was essentially <laughs> was bordering on treason. He was trying to push the United States in the direction of being pro-British. In fact, he was working as Agent 7. He was, he was labeled as Agent 7 carrying on a clandestine correspondence with the British under behind Washington's back. Washington didn't want that. Washington in his first or I'm sorry in his farewell address and of course as he outlined throughout his administration wanted to have neutrality. Now Hamilton and of course James Madison argued in the Pacificus Helvidius debates about this. Hamilton, of course, took the approach that the president alone could dictate neutrality. And, of course, Madison said that's not possible. The Congress has to be involved in that. And, of course, what Parenti says is that, you know, it was Adams that created all kinds of problems here. The Adams administration, Hamilton didn't even support Adams. I mean, Hamilton had strayed away from Adams because he torpedoed his re-election chances in 1800. Adams wasn't going to win anyways because of the Alien and Sedition Acts. Which, by the way, Hamilton really didn't have that much of a problem with. Uh, and the fact is, Adams was pursuing a much less pro-British policy. Adams' foreign policy actually wasn't bad. You had the, uh, the construction of the United States Navy, which Jefferson didn't get rid of. I mean, look, uh, there was an attempt, uh, there was some talk about using the Portuguese Navy, renting that out. There was some talk about using essentially militia, a militia navy, gunboats. Uh, and you could say that the prospect of a, of a strong central army uh, was uh, something that the, that the Jeffersonians despised, but so did George Washington. George Washington in his farewell address said we don't need a strong standing army. This was the American position, not just the Jeffersonian position. So see again... Here's where Parenti just doesn't really get it. He doesn't get this is the American position. And the British were obnoxious. I mean, 
the British were obnoxious. And part of that was because, of course, they never really thought the United States should be independent anyways, and because of problems on the frontier. The strong, I mean, Hamilton's system would not have, I think, placated the British in any way. Remember, if you don't know, but Jefferson essentially had adopted some of Hamilton's ideas when uh, he embraced the embargo, for example. We're just not going to trade with anybody. Now, Hamilton, of course, would say well, we need free trade and other things. We need to be an active part. What Hamilton really wanted was to be pro-British, which would have gotten us in a war with the French. So, I mean, it's either the British or the French. We almost were in, we were in a war with the French during the Adams administration. So, the quasi-war with France. So, what do you want? Do you want a war with the British or a war with the French? The French could have invaded, too. This is, you know, this is where Parenti just doesn't get the history right. He says, Hamilton, a proto-keyboard warrior who could never log off despite the pleadings of his more level-headed friends, helped torpedo Adams' re-election bid in 1800, publishing a, a searing takedown of his party's incumbent. That led to 24 unbroken years of Jeffersonian rule, first by Jefferson himself, then James Madison, followed by James Monroe, leaving the federal government in the hands of slave owners, intent on stifling the growth of a rival political economy that they saw as a competitor to the Southern way of life. Under their guidance, the economy and government both shrank. The army withered away, and precisely as Hamilton had warned, that weakness led to a British invasion, the torching of the Capitol and the White House. Um, well, I mean, the fact is, the United States still had a Navy here. And that was how the British and the United States started slugging it out before the War of 1812. You go back to the Chesapeake Affair with Jefferson. I mean, these things were going on with the Navy that we had. And Jefferson, as Drew McCoy has pointed out, wasn't necessarily anti-Hamilton when it came to his political economy. In fact, the National Republicans were born, in many ways, out of the Jefferson administration. The, the Whigs of Henry Clay, as Michael Holt has shown, were Republicans. They weren't Hamiltonians. They were Republicans. So the piece continues. Hamilton's alternate vision for the role of the American government within the Constitution was that animates Parenti's book. It is one that was only haltingly carried out in the United States, but has been studied and followed, Parenti finds, by some of the Asian governments that most successfully designed their own economic development, such as South Korea and Japan. Oh yeah, Japan just a great model of uh, high inflation and stagflation. I mean, we should follow that. As well as the early development of German governments. Yeah, sure. I mean, we want to be Germany. Hamilton's vision matters today, Parenti argues, because in order for the United States to transform its economy rapidly enough to stave off cataclysmic climate change, we need not look to social experiments in foreign countries or the writings of Karl Marx, but simply to Hamilton, key architect of the Constitution, the lead author of the Federalist Papers and his Treasury Secretary, the government official most responsible for shaping and structuring the executive branch as it exists today. While Hamilton only succeeded in implementing roughly half of his agenda, the left should use liberal intoxication with the myth of Hamilton to drive home the other half. Well, I do agree with him that we live in Hamilton's America. I mean, this is, the presidency is Hamilton's design. Of course, Parenti's looking for climate. I mean, this is, this is just ridiculous stuff. But anyways, uh, Hamilton's vision is already there. Among those Hamiltonian accomplishments, he managed to empower the federal government to assume all Revolutionary War loans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He's the half-Hamilton accomplished, likely saved the U.S. from falling into a post-colonial enfeebled uh, state status 
as befell Central and South American governments that largely failed to carry out a national project on similar scale. We don't know that. The United States was doing just fine under the agrarian economy. In fact, you didn't have central banking uh, for a period of time, uh, and you know it was doing okay. We had an independent treasury uh, that was not something that allowed the government to spend and borrow the way it does now. And that's good, right? Writes Parenti, Hamilton's status political economy is all there in print, yet most recent literature on Hamilton shies away from addressing his profoundly status economic ideas. The report is occasionally name-checked, but almost never read, taught in college courses, or publicly discussed in any detail. Oh, well, I do. See, I have a whole book on it <laughs> about the, the report and what it actually meant. Not the economic part, but the constitutional part. In reality, Hamilton sought to create a national market from uh, 13 semi-integrated pieces and then transition that national economy from a lopsided dependence on export agriculture to a balanced and diversified economy centered on manufacturing. In the report, Hamilton lists in meticulous detail exactly how government should not merely tinker with but fundamentally overhaul and create from the ground up whole markets. The set of tools was labeled with a phrase that should be famous, the means proper. These included carefully targeted state subsidies, protective tariffs, strategic Strategic exemptions from the, from the same tariffs, selective export bans of strategic raw materials, quality control standards and inspections, public investment in infrastructure, research and development, recruitment of skilled labor, and other measures that are detailed later. In other words, he wanted to create state capitalism, which was nothing new. I mean, this is mercantilism. It's exactly what Hamilton's advocating is mercantilism. So what Parenti is saying is we need a mercantilist economy. Well, we have that. We have a neo-mercantilist economy. We have it today. We don't have a free economy. We do all of these things in America. So what is he? I mean, well, nobody's talking about this. No, we just have the whole economic structure built around it. His one-time Federalist Papers collaborator James Madison turned on him over Hamilton's broad interpretation of the General Welfare Clause of the Constitution. That spring, he sent Henry Lee III, father of Robert E. Lee, a copy of Hamilton's report on manufacturers. When think of you of the commentary on the terms general welfare, asked Madison, the federal government has been hitherto limited to specific pow specified powers. If not only the means, but the objects are unlimited, the parchment had better be thrown into the fire at once. But there were fires on all sides, thanks to Jefferson and Madison's deliberate weakening of the government. But see, it wasn't that. Madison was arguing for the Constitution that was ratified. This was exactly how the Constitution was argued and how Hamilton himself said it would be followed when he was arguing for ratification. You see, this is the problem with all of this. Hamilton was creating a Constitution that didn't exist. He was creating, he was innovating and creating something out of thin air that was not ratified. All that Jefferson and Madison were doing is saying, hey, look, this is not the Constitution we ratified. You ratified this one. We can go back and look at the debates and see what people said, see how it would be argued it was going to be it followed when we got this thing. But that's not what Hamilton was trying to do. The British invaded on the way to near reconquest, did more than metaphorically torch a piece of parchment after a delightfully vivid portrait of the burning of Washington, including the Capitol building in Madison's White House by a British admiral. Parenti warns that much worse is in store for the next foe. If the lesson of this history for the era of climate change is unclear in your mind's eye, replace the Mongolian vengeance of the young Admiral Cockburn, the flames illuminating his 
Maniac laughter with ferocious tree-toppling winds, surging street-flooding tides, floating cars, and a government response in chaotic default and ruin. Then imagine the next day, sweltering hot, sodden, soggy, and startling to sink, starting to sink of rotting garbage in the occasional corpse. The reckoning of a climate crisis is not properly addressed will make Cockburn's revenge look like little more than a late-night statue toppling. <laughs> These people, I, I don't even know what to say about this. Uh, It's embarrassing the way that they, they portray some of these things. Hamilton's vision became known as the American School, later developed by Henry Clay as the American system, and in his home state of Kentucky, the Bluegrass system. It represents Hamilton as most radical and expansive, wheedling the General Welfare Clause to claim for the federal government the power to do more or less centrally plan and develop the economy, and everything else too. Hence the whole point of how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. That is the basic thesis of my book. I mean, this is what I couldn't get, why people didn't eat this thing up. you got Parenti, you've got this thing. But no, nobody's talked about this before. In fact, the neoconservatives hated my book, which is why I don't think it got a broader reading. I published with a conservative press, and it got panned by the neoconservatives. Uh, and the libertarians, of course, the Ford is written by Ron Paul, but the libertarians... Liked it. Of course, there's also DiLorenzo's book. Uh, but, you know, this book, my book should still see the light of day here because of this stuff. The American system, which was the ideology at the heart of the Whig Party, argued that internal improvements, roads, canals, bridges, rail, etc., in a coherent national economy and currency were essential to developing the country. It was a school of thought adopted by longtime Whig Abraham Lincoln and pushed forward through Reconstruction by both radical and moderate Republicans, while it was rejected by the conservative Republicans who came to dominate that party in the later part of the 19th century. No, no, no. It wasn't rejected by them. The Republican Party didn't, didn't reject the American system. In fact, the Republican Party, the, the Republican Party was pushing for the McKinley Tariff in the late 19th century. They didn't reject these things. They didn't reject internal improvements. They didn't reject rail lines. Go back to, to Jay Gould. He's a Republican pushing for state ownership or state subsidies for rail lines. <laughs> you, go, you go in the whole late 19th century. It's the Republican agenda. I mean, I don't get this. This is The book is built on, a, 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 on history that this guy doesn't even understand. It would finally gain favor among New Deal Democrats, who by then had shorn it from its founder Hamilton, who was reviled as no better than the widely corrupt Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon, who served every, served every Republican administration from Warren Harding to Herbert Hoover. Except Herbert Hoover loved the New Deal. In fact, it was his New Deal. So basically what happened, and I mean, look, I mean, I get into this in the book. You, you go from, from Hamilton all the way through. The, what about Wilson? Wilson was advocating this kind of stuff. He might have been uh, anti-tariff. You had the, 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 uh, the idea of reducing the tariff. But regardless, uh, the Democrats generally believed in all these other things. I mean, Hamilton's economic system won. Hamilton was attacked in his time and still is today for his 
unapologetically pessimistic appraisal of the American people and the many checks he hoped to put on popular democracy. He did not believe the people were irredeemable, however, and developed the nation's economy with a key to that redemption. Hamilton is often knocked as a pawn for the merchant class or for the elites, and certainly that's where he found his greatest support. His federal assumption of war debts amounted to the first major U.S. government bailout for the rich. There's no evidence that he personally profited from any of his relationships with the elite allies and instead saw in them the vehicle for development of an entire manufacturing base. Well, this is true. I mean, Hamilton, for all that Hamilton was, I don't think he was personally corrupt. Even Jefferson said, I mean, he's fairly honest. Now, I disagree with that in some ways, but um, he wasn't corrupt. Where, Ma- where Marx, half a century later, identified a working class capable of ruling and producing an equitable society, Hamilton needed to first create one. Building up a manufacturing base had all sorts of positive knock-on effects for American society, he argued in his report, etc., etc. Parenti writes, in Hamilton's reading of history of those men who have overturned the liberties of republics, the greatest number have, been their, have begun their career by paying an, an, a, a court to the people, commencing demagogues and ending tyrants. At times, Hamilton almost sounds like Lenin in left-wing communism and infantile disorder, in which the Russian revolutionary criticizes the ultra-left for making their desire, their political ideology, attitude for objective reality. Hamilton would likely have agreed with Lenin that such a miscalculation is the most dangerous mistake for the revolutionaries. He probably also would have agreed with Lenin's pronouncement that our theory is not a dogma but a guide to action. Well, I mean, I, might have, I, I doubt he would agree with Lenin on just about much of anything, but we... I, I don't know. So, I mean, this continues. He says the Jeffersonians were unnerved by Hamilton's ideas, blocking them where they could not, where they could, and rolling them back later when they couldn't. For the failure to execute on the vision, Parenti's unsparring in his criticisms of the Federalists and at times of Hamilton, who had no interest in defending as a person or in total. The Federalists, he argues, were too distracted by their own authoritarian, paranoid tendencies and their personality clashes. Uh, only recently with Chernow's biography and Miranda's musical has Hamilton's reputation not, been not just rehabilitated, but burnished beyond recognition. Obama speaking from the White House stage where Miranda had first unveiled some of his rap lyrics about the Treasury Secretary long before the play was on Broadway, said that he hoped audiences understood the meaning of the musical. This is Obama now. We hope that they'll walk away with, uh, with an understanding of what our founders got started, that it was just a start. It was just a beginning. That's what makes America so great. You finish the story. We're not finished. This is a constant work in progress. America, we're boisterous and we're diverse. We're full of energy and perpetually young in spirit. We're the project that never ends. We make mistakes. We have our foibles. But ultimately, when every voice is heard, we overcome them. It's not the project of any one person. America is what we make of it. And we all need to look at this cast performing in front of George and Martha to know that our founders could not have dreamt I think it's fair to say that our founders couldn't have dreamt up the future that they set in motion. It's only by exercising the greatest gift to us, the gift of citizenship, that we keep our democracy alive and continue the work of creating that more perfect union. I mean, this is, this is gobbledygook, right? Because, uh, I mean, continue remaking everything. This is, this is the point, and this is where I think Parenti is getting to. He said, let Obama continue to believe that, but Parenti provides the power of the federal government to unleash this. It's already been unleashed. This is the thing. It's already been unleashed. I, I, I don't see how Parenti can't see that. It's already been unleashed. All right. So this was a longer episode than what I normally do, what I've been doing. It's a 30-minute episode and because I wanted to get through this, and it's such an important topic. Get my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. You can get it now for next to nothing. I mean, it's, it's been dropped. The price is low. 
pick that up. I, I actually agree with Parenti that Hamilton did all this, but it's already there, which is why Hamilton screwed up America. It's already there. It doesn't need to be followed. It's been followed for generations. All right. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. 